Let me lead us in prayer. Loving Father, we thank you so much for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that he has written your word and that we have him now as we hear you speak to us. Please help us to understand what it means for us to be a loving church, including what it means for us to show tough love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, throughout 2022, there were many moments when we experienced afresh the joy of community. For as they say, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And so for many months over the past few years, our physical expression of community was restricted by public health orders. And the experience of hugs and handshakes was replaced by waves on Zoom, which meant that our physical reunions, when they eventually did happen, they really helped us to appreciate the wonder of life together. From the pandemic, we've now been able to use technology to bring us together in ways that we never expected. And so now, most mornings at 7am, I meet with a bunch of you guys for a half an hour service of morning prayer. Uh, so even though we are physically apart, there really has become a closeness. And uh, any of you are welcome at any time to join us also at 7am at zoom.jambrewanglican.com. But for some of you, uh, health or distance has meant that you still haven't been able to return to church. And so to come here together through live stream or podcast has brought us together in a way that we didn't expect. But whether it's in person or whether it's online, we have a unity here, a togetherness at Jamboree Anglican, and it's very special. But when I talk about our community here, I wonder what it is that you think as a word that describes our community. I reckon the most common way that we use to describe our community is family. We often talk about ourselves as a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we, by being united with Christ, have a special bond with each other. And it's a family-like kind of bond, isn't it? And that's why when one of us celebrates, we all feel the joy. And when one of us suffers, we all feel the pain. Being part of a church family is a genuine slice of heaven. It's a, it's a real taste of the new creation. But family isn't the only word that's used to describe the gathering of God's people, the church community. And we see another one of those words in 1 Corinthians. We've been looking over the last 10 weeks carefully at Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first of those. And we've heard him talk about church community. And instead of family, what has he used? He's used the word temple. Paul talks about us as being like the temple. Back in chapter 3, he said, Don't you realise that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. See, throughout these earlier chapters, he's described Christians as the temple of God. And if you think back to what the temple was like in the Old Testament, it was the physical representation of the presence of God. You know, Even though God was everywhere in his creation, there was something special about that building in that particular place. And he was present in a special kind of way. And that is why it's an extraordinary idea that we as followers of Jesus, we as Christians, are now the new temple. Interesting, isn't it? The presence of God in the world 
is now us. And God is present amongst us by his Holy Spirit. He's present in us. So instead of going to this big stone building in Jerusalem to meet God, we now meet God in each other. It's just one little way that we see the dramatic transformation that came from the death of Jesus. And it helps us understand why it is that when he died, the temple curtain tore in two. And why it is that even though it was a huge event in 70 AD when the temple was finally destroyed, it didn't actually do much to our faith at all. It was kind of old news in a lot of ways. But when we think about the temple, we don't just think of the presence of God. We also think of his holiness. And so because we together are his temple, that means that we together must be holy. So as his temple, we must be holy. We've got to be genuinely different to the world. We've got to be genuinely set apart in every every way. And that's why Paul said back in chapter 3, God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And so with all of that in mind, we now turn to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians in what is a fairly confronting word about community, I must say. Because he is going to talk about the urgent need for church discipline. And it's going to be costly. And it's going to be painful. Quite possibly, this is the most extensive speech about church discipline in the whole of the New Testament. And so we've got to listen very, very carefully to what's being saying. And we need to do that because we have a natural tendency to be nice instead of holy. We prefer to be nice rather than holy. And so these words from the Bible are likely to challenge us in many ways. Now, I need to say something very important to us as we get to this point in our talk. And that is, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you're going to be confronted by the language of unbelievers and outsiders and pagans and things like that. And as we get to this bit, I want you to know this very clearly, whether you're here with us in the building or whether you're watching on live stream, that you are very, very welcome to be with us right here. And every Sunday church service is like an open house for visitors. Every time we would... Love to have you with us on your spiritual journey. But what happens is we are reading 1 Corinthians very carefully over 32 weeks, unless the Lord returns before then, which would be great. But 32 weeks, which means we just need to walk slowly, verse by verse, verse by verse, and we're up to this particular part of the Bible. And it's going to talk a lot more about the difference between being a Christian and being a non-Christian, between being a believer and an unbeliever. There's going to be a whole lot of talk about how Christians are to deal with the world. So I don't want you to feel uncomfortable if you say, hey, I don't think I'm a Christian yet. I don't think I've signed up for that yet. Because you've actually got a special privilege tonight because you get to have an insight into how it is that God teaches us about the relationship of the world to the church. And so if you're not yet someone who's jumped in and following the Lord Jesus yet, buckle up. Enjoy the ride with all of us because we are going to see this and I really hope you feel welcome and not uncomfortable as we we talk in this particular way from the Bible. And from all of this, as is the case every week, I really would love you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, to think, I might actually do that. 
Because we would love you to become a follower of Jesus so that you have the certain hope that comes only from knowing Jesus. Well, with all of that in mind, let's jump into chapter 5. And it begins like this. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. Right here off the bat, Paul addresses the big problem in the church in Corinth. He's heard a word about sexual immorality going on in the church. He talks about how there was sexual immorality in the Corinthian church. Now, the original word in the Greek Bible is actually the word porneia. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, it's where we get the English word porn from. And you add the Greek word for writing, graphair, you get pornography, pornography. That's where the word comes from. And the word porneia that is translated here in our Bibles as sexual immorality can refer to anything that is sexual that is against God's good plan. God made sex for marriage and he made marriage for one man and one woman for life. And so any sexual activity that is outside biblical marriage is, by definition, sexual immorality. It's captured in this particular word. And as we'll see a little bit later on in this chapter, the Bible lists sexual immorality as just one of many sins that damages the church and harms our holiness. But in this verse, he does signal out sexual immorality because there's one particular issue that is quite shocking. And we read it in the second half of verse 1. He says, I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. But literally, as we see in some other translations, it says, a man has his father's wife. Paul has heard about a shocking act of sexual immorality by someone within that church. And it is something that not even the pagans do. Now, I've got to tell you, Romans were not the kind of people that had a reputation for being prudish, that being, you know, ooh, none of that. They, were, they jumped into sexual immorality with, with, with a deep dive, right? And yet even the Romans and the Greeks were shocked by incest. Uh, in, in fact, the historian Josephus called incest the grossest of sins. But how does the church react to this act of incest? Verse 2. You are so proud of yourselves. Not only are they tolerating the sin, like it's a bit weird, but we'll just let him go on and do what he's doing. They're actually proud about it. They are boasting in a sin that the world finds shocking. Now, why would they be boasting in it? Well, some people think it might be that the sinner is actually very rich and may be very powerful in the community, which would go along with all the stuff that we've been hearing about what the Corinthians value in their community. And so maybe their church is so inclusive that they're happy for a person who says that they're a follower of Jesus to be a person who is active in incest. And they say... How good, is, how good are we? We are people that let Christians do anything they like. What a wonderful church we are. They really want to fit into the world, don't they? But they have got it totally wrong. This is the reaction they should be having. Verse 2b. 
but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. Their hearts should be breaking. They should feel like they're at a funeral. They should be mourning over the sins of their community, just like Ezra did, just like Daniel did. And that's because they should see this sexual immorality as damaging the entire Christian community. So what should they do? Well, Paul says this to them. He says, and you should remove this man from your fellowship. Verse 2. He tells them to expel this immoral man. It's a pretty drastic surgery for the church, isn't it? But if this church in Corinth is welcoming and boasting in this shocking sin, then some pretty serious action needs to be taken. And I want to say again, and I'll say this a few times tonight, if you're a person who's not yet a follower of Jesus, this is not talking about you. It's talking about people who follow Jesus, who say they're Christians, and yet they disobey him without any shame. That's who it's talking about. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we'd love you to ask him for forgiveness and to follow him as your loving ruler. And we'd love you to be with us in our church as you go on that journey. But what's being talked about here in the Bible is something different. It's about a person who says, I follow Jesus. I'm a Christian. And yet they proudly live in disobedience. It's kind of like, how was your week? You're sitting around in growth groups. Oh, it was great. I got into an incestuous relationship. Congratulations for you. Isn't that a lovely thing? It's like, no, it's not. Something's wrong here. You're not supposed to be boasting in that. You've got to take drastic surgery. The whole church needs to take drastic surgery. This proudly disobedient person must be removed. And then he says this from verse 3. He says, Even though I am not with you in person... I am with you in the spirit. And as though I were there, I've already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. He makes this judgment from a distance. And yet he can say that he is present there by the Holy Spirit. And I think that's because he is speaking his word that they are hearing. And as an apostle, the apostolic word is the presence of him amongst them by the spirit of God in the name of Jesus. And this is what he tells them, verse 4b. He says, you must call a meeting of the church. I'll be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. He really ups the ante, doesn't he? He's saying it's not just a, a little get-together. He's saying this is a big deal. That is how they are to deal with this public sin. They've got to hold a public meeting of the church. And Paul knows that he will have a presence at that special meeting, even though he's not actually physically there. Because he is there and he's written this letter and he's declared this judgment, he himself is present in a sense by the Spirit. And then what have they got to do? Well, verse 5 it says, Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan. It's pretty drastic, isn't it? But what it's saying is they need to treat him like he's a follower of Satan, not a follower of Jesus. Because if they are proud of this blatant sexual immorality, then they're not acting like a follower of Jesus at all. And so they need drastic spiritual surgery. And that's what we see here, verse 5b. They do this so that his sinful nature will be destroyed. 
hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed. Now, we're not sure exactly what that means, but in all of this, it shows him and the church the seriousness of sin. This will help everyone see the seriousness of sin. It's drastic, but it is life and death. Because if he doesn't do it, what does it say in verse 5c? It says, if he does do it, he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. That is what it's all about. That's all that matters. All that matters is that they will be saved on the day that the Lord Jesus comes back. Saved from sin and death and hell. That is all that matters. All that matters in life is whether you and I are ready for the return of Jesus. That is why Paul wants the people in Corinth to deal so decisively with this man who is publicly sinning. It's so that he will repent of his sin and turn back to Jesus and be saved. That is all that ultimately matters in life. And it's another reminder that if you haven't yet done that, you're making a serious mistake. And we want to lovingly warn you to join us in following Jesus if you haven't already. Because it's only by trusting in the Lord Jesus that you will be saved. But this is not the only reason that the man committing the serious sin should be removed from the church. The other reason is that if they don't treat the sin seriously, they'll end up accepting it. And they might even start committing it themselves. That sin will spread to them. They will get infected by his spiritual sexual immorality. And that will be then spiritually fatal for them. They need to stop the sin from spreading. And so he says in verse 6, your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realise that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? The sin of just one person has the potential to infect the entire church. It's just like how a little bit of yeast, just a little bit of powder, not much, that is enough to impact an entire dough and to make it rise. It's On a negative side, it's a little bit like how a tiny trace of peanuts can actually bring someone who has an allergy uh, to have an extreme reaction, an anaphylactic reaction. Just a tiny little bit. It's the same sort of thing. One serious public sin in the church can lead to the whole church being impacted by that sin. And it will spread through the church. And so the answer is to do this, verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. They've got to get rid of this wicked person. They need to cleanse the community. Now, this is actually what they did as God's people every year. They had a festival of unleavened bread. Now, they didn't know what yeast was or wasn't, but they, they did know that it, they kept a little bit of the bread from the week before, then over time it would ferment. And that leaven, as they called it, would then be amongst all of their bread and so forth. Once a year, they needed to cleanse it out completely. They threw out all the bread. They cleaned it up because they had the idea that that little bit of leaven actually would catch diseases and would be bad for the community. So the festival of the unleavened bread was when they did a complete clean-out, a big spring clean of yeast in that way. 
But do you know what they did after the festival of unleavened bread? They would have the Passover. And so with all this talk about leaven and unleaven and all that kind of stuff, what does Paul talk about? Well, he then says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. He goes straight from the festival of the unleavened bread to the festival of the Passover. You know that festival of the Passover, the one that they, they, they had every single year to, to remember a special event? It was the time of the first exodus. And at the Passover, they remembered how the angel of death passed over the houses of those people who would paint on the side of their doors some of the blood of the lamb. And the Passover was the Passover of the angel of death. And so with the blood of the lamb, they were saved from the death that would come to the firstborn. And every year they remembered that very significant event as the Passover. And what does the Apostle Paul here in the Scriptures say? He says, you think that was significant? That's nothing compared to what Jesus did. Because he himself is the Passover lamb once and for all. The death of Jesus dealt with sin forever. And that is why they can get ultimate relief from the judgment that they deserve for their sin. They can be forgiven because Jesus died on their behalf. Jesus took their sins so that they could then have purity in the church, just like the removal of yeast from their houses. And that'll mean that they should now move away from wickedness and evil and they should head towards sincerity and truth. That is what happens when we are cleansed from our sin. We don't keep wallowing in our sin like a pig in mud. We get rid of it. It reminds me of what an old minister once told me. He said that we should be like cats, not like pigs. Because when cats get dirty, they spend all their time just trying to lick off the dirt wherever it is. There's a bit of dirt and they'll just spend all their time licking it off. Whereas when pigs get dirty, it's like, you little ripper, let's get dirtier. And off they go. And it's a little bit of an analogy here, but basically it reminds us that whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, Sin will infect you. Sin is all around. And as Christians, we should be people who, when we have sin, we treat it seriously. And we, we don't say, oh, well, whatever. It's like, no, we're going to deal with that. We're going to confess our sins to God. We're not going to be like a pig who says, you little ripper, we're just going to wallow around in the sin. But what do you reckon the Corinthian church was like? A lot more like the pigs than the, like the cats. See, we continue to sin and that's one of the reasons why at the start of our church services, we have a confession. We say sorry to God as a whole congregation. I mean, I trust that you do that on your own on a regular basis. I know that I do. Sorry, God, I said that. Sorry, I thought that. Sorry, I, I, I'm saying sorry all the time to God. But when we come together, we say as a, as a church, we say together, we are sorry for our sins. You see, this is what we need to do as Christians. We need to say sorry for our sins and we need to pray that we will stop giving in to that temptation, whatever that temptation is. Because we as Christians should hate the sin and we should seek to stop. 
What's the sin that you're really struggling with at the moment? I'm not going to ask you to name it, but what is it? How do you feel when you sin in that way? How do you feel afterwards? You're happy about it? Oh, that was a great sin. I hope not. See, we as Christians who know and love the Lord Jesus should say, oh, I'm sorry again, Lord. And we should pray, Lord, please stop me doing that. We should hate that sin and seek to stop. And we should certainly not boast in it or rejoice in it like the Corinthians were. Because they were supporting a Christian who was boldly sinning in a blatant and scandalous sin. And it's not like they didn't know what they were doing. Paul had already sent them a letter. We read in verse 9, he says, When I wrote to you before, remember that letter? I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. He's already told them that. He's told them they need to break away from people who indulge in sexual sin, who delight in sexual immorality. But maybe they were asking the question, does that mean that we can't have anything to do with anybody at all, especially people who are not followers of Jesus? No, 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 no. Verse 10 says, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. Because you'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. He's not talking about unbelievers. He's not talking about having nothing to do with people who don't know Jesus yet. Not at all. Because if that was the case, when you become a Christian, you'd have to completely check out of the world completely. You'd have to become a monk or a nun, live in abbeys and monasteries and things like that. But that's not the way that God wants us to live. In fact, he sees that it is right for us to engage with our world. It's right for us to be in the world if you're a follower of Jesus. But there is a natural attraction for us to to sort of just hang out with other followers of Jesus. Now, Mandy and I got a little bit of a taste of that when we spent four years training for ministry at Moore College. We lived in uh, houses where everybody in the street were also studying at Moore College and we spent a lot of time with people who were at Moore College who were training to be Christian ministers. Um, you might think, oh, that's great. There was no sin. There was nothing went wrong. No, I can assure you that that was not the case. But there was something really nice about being there with other believers. But it was for a moment and it was a fleeting moment because now we are scattered literally throughout the world and that's the way it should be. In the world. But what about living with Christians who have no shame at all about sinning? Well, that's what this chapter's about. He says in chapter 5, verse 11, I meant that you're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer and yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. Can you see what he's saying to the people there in Corinth? He's saying, don't be closely associated with Christians who indulge in those kinds of sins. And he lists six of them there. He says, don't associate with Christians who indulge in sin, who love sin, who love those sins. You see what the list was? It said, anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin is greedy, worships idols, abusive, drunkard, or cheats people. There's a whole list there 
of people who love those sins and boast about those sins. And the community says, hey, how good are those sins? It includes people who are unashamed about loving money or worshipping idols or being abusive or being regularly drunk or cheating on people. Christians who are unashamed about these things, who act like these sins are not a problem at all but actually kind of good, they need to realise they're wrong, that it's a big thing. They've got to realise the seriousness of their sin and the church needs to avoid having that wrong attitude rub off on the rest of us because otherwise that sin will be normalised. Like, for example, if there's someone in the church who is greedy, who just loves money and stuff and possessions and worships it, if the church doesn't do something about that, then eventually we'll all start feeling that way. It'll rub off onto all of us. That sin will be normalised and greed will infect the church. Uh, what, what about drunkenness? You know, if there's someone who regularly gets drunk within our church, then soon that sin will be normalised and drunkenness will infect the church. Or maybe if there's someone in the church who, who regularly cheats people. You know, ah, I gave this quote, it was pretty dodgy, but they accepted the quote and I got heaps of money out of that. It was a really big margin on that particular job. Then when we say, well done, that's the spirit of capitalism, then it starts to infect us, doesn't it? And it normalises us. And that sin infects the church. See, the church is made up of Christians who have become the new temple. And the new temple must be holy. And we must keep the church holy. And that's why we have to judge Christians. We need to judge Christians. Verse 12, Paul says, It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. See, Christians are not supposed to judge people who are outside the church. Non-Christians. That's not our job. But we are supposed to judge other Christians who are sinning. But why? Well, we've already seen three things here. The first is we'll judge them so that they will repent and stop falling away from God. Also, we'll judge other Christians so that their sin won't then lead others to sin. And thirdly, we'll judge others because the church is supposed to be holy. And this is why in our final verse, it says, God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. I think it's difficult to find a clearer verse than this about church discipline. And as we sum up and wrap up, I think there are two important things I want us to note. And the first is this. We need to keep opening our doors to unbelievers. So if someone joins our church who's not yet a follower of Jesus, and it might be you, and welcome, it's so good you're here, we want this church to have a reputation as being a place that includes people here who are indulging in sexual sin or greedy or worship idols or abusive or drunkards and cheat people because they are the kind of people that Jesus spent time with. In fact, 
the Pharisees accused Jesus of being wrong. They, they said the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, Luke 5, complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples and said, Why do you eat and drink with such scum? And Jesus answered them, Healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Jesus spent time with spiritually sick people, and so should we as the followers of Jesus. And so if you are in that category, and you're a person who hasn't yet turned to Jesus, you are very welcome here, and you are welcome to be with us as you take that spiritual journey. Because as you come to him and say sorry, he will forgive you of your sin and set you on the pathway to know what it means to obey him and his word. The second thing I wanted us to take away from this is that we need to take sin seriously as Christians. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're happy about sinning, you've got to stop. It really is that serious. If you think you can keep on being abusive or sexually immoral or greedy or idolatrous or an abuser of alcohol or a cheater of others... If you think you can keep doing that, you need to stop. You need to repent. Because if you don't, God wants us to treat you as an unbeliever. And there is nothing that would break my heart more than to see you treated as an unbeliever. But we will do it if we need to. That is because we love you that much that we want you to know how serious your sin really is. And we want you to repent Because nothing would break our heart more to know that you have walked away from following Jesus. We say this because we need to be a community that loves each other enough to say the tough things. And as we say the tough things and do the tough things, we do it out of love. If you are living a life where you have gone off the rails and you were following Jesus and you are no longer following him... Time is short. You need to turn back to God. And we say that out of love because we are family. That's what family does. A healthy family is honest with each other. And that's what we're called to be and called to do. We will say the words that are true and hard because we love each other. And so that means that there will be times when we need to have a serious meeting to deal with a serious sin in our congregation. And if we do that, It'll be because we love each other so much that we want to prevent people from wandering onto a pathway to hell. We want to be a community that is so full of love and truth that we deal honestly with each other and our sins. Because good families say the hard things to each other in love. And because we're also the new temple, we are God's presence in a world that needs Jesus. Let's sing of the wondrous mystery.